Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Chelsea Troy, who is currently a staff software engineer on machine learning and backend systems at Mozilla. She also maintains the Zooniverse Citizen Science mobile app, the NASA Landsat Data Processing Pipeline, and a few other open source projects. Chelsea is a maintainer for the Rock Programming Language and mentors formerly incarcerated technologists through Emergent Works. She teaches Python and mobile development at the University of Chicago's Master's Program in Computer Science, hosts workshops for O'Reilly, and writes at ChelseaTroy.com. Chelsea Troy, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Oh, gosh. So this is an interesting question, and it's one that I think about a fair amount with regard to how do we go about making software more maintainable? Because over the course of my career, I've been involved in a minimum of half a dozen rewrites, probably more than that. And a rewrite is expensive. You know, it often involves a team of developers employed full-time specifically on rewriting something. Rewriting something feels really good to the developers who are rewriting it because at that point it's still small and they have all of the context. I think that the characteristic to me, if I were to use one heuristic characteristic to describe maintainable software, it would be software that can survive a context loss event, such as the person who wrote it leaving. I've seen a number of occasions where a piece of software became unmaintainable, not because the software didn't work or because it was badly written or any of those things, but because there was just no longer enough context in the organization to be able to work on it in the form that it was in. And so I think that one of the most important characteristics of well-maintained software is a conscious effort to ensure that enough context remains available for folks who come in without existing familiarity with the system to gain that context and maintain it. And I think that a lot of the practices that I would describe as good code stewardship or code that, or uh, rather practices that keep software maintainable are geared towards putting that context in places where it's accessible and easy for folks to get. And where do you think that tends to work best? And like in the, are you talking about like documentation in code or documentation, wikis, tools like that? Is there, do you have strong opinions on where things like that should exist? I don't know how strong they are. I do have opinions on where documentation like that goes. I think that as an industry, we sort of started out with folks not really keeping documentation. Folks don't often like to keep documentation. And so the general consensus is that we have too little documentation. And I find that at some organizations, the reaction to that is to instead develop 4,000 word readmes and uh, document in that way. And I'm not convinced that that's the most effective strategy either for a couple of reasons. 
The first is that that kind of documentation is extremely decoupled from the code. So I find it interesting that we as an industry make fun of code comments for being decoupled from the code, but then we turn around and we write these really long readmes that are even more decoupled from the code because they're in a different place in addition to not changing along with the code itself. And the thing about documentation like that is that it shares a characteristic with code with it that I think we also overlook when we're talking about maintainability. We have this idea that technical debt is uh, tantamount to bad code. If you ask folks what technical debt is, they will very often say something about the quality of the code that has the debt in it. And I think that that's often not fair to the developers who originally wrote the code because they were more than uh, more often than not capable developers under constraints we don't understand. But that's not even the reason that that misconception materially harms us. The reason that that misconception materially harms us is that it leads us into a false sense of security that if we write sufficiently quote-unquote good code, then it won't have maintenance load associated with it. And I don't think that's the case. All code has maintenance load associated with it. We are constantly paying rent in time and effort on all of the features that exist in our system. And that's also true of documentation. So if developers don't want to write documentation in the first place, and then they write, as somebody writes a 6,000-word readme, now the team is responsible for maintaining that 6,000-word readme. And the trend that I have seen in reading documentation about open source libraries and programming languages is that that documentation tends to become out of date, which isn't surprising because nobody wanted to write it in the first place. Maintaining it is even less interesting. And so when we write documentation in that way, I think we're often not considering the maintenance load associated with keeping documentation of that kind. And I wish that we would spend more time thinking about how to preserve context most effectively while adding the least maintenance load to the code base that we can. I think that can include a number of different tools outside of the readme. So one of the things I like to think about a lot is keeping as much documentation living as possible. And what I mean by living documentation is things like tests written at the appropriate level of abstraction, because that not only serves to prevent against regressions, it can also serve as a small laboratory for somebody who's joining a code base to be able to experiment with what it's going to do in various circumstances, which I think can be really helpful, really helpful for kinesthetic learners, people like me who like to break things and see how they break. It can even be something like effective error messaging. I think that libraries often suffer from a situation where Folks who it'll still do something when folks are using it wrong and they can't necessarily figure out what the problem is. I think more attention to detail around error messaging is a really effective way to store context in a code base. I like to use commit messages for storing temporally sensitive context in a code base because I think that the git annotation view showing what lines changed and when, if there's a commit message there that also explains why, that can help me track by looking at the annotation for a file what code changed over time. And so I really value commit messages for that. I have almost no use for the 80 character limit on git commit messages. I think that code comments also have a place, particularly if we're talking about the structure of a piece of code as opposed to maybe the individual lines because the structure isn't necessarily likely to change or something like you know a third-party integration that has a weird line in it and we have to explain why it's like that it looks like a mistake and we have to explain that it's not a mistake and then 
after I've exhausted all of those options and then maybe several more, then at that point I'm thinking about a readme. But to the degree I can, I try to think about at what point is somebody going to need this information and how can I provide that piece of information and no other pieces of information to them so that it effectively transfers the piece of context that's necessary without forcing people to wade through a whole bunch of other stuff on their way to the context. No, I can appreciate that. And that's, uh, my assumption is a lot of organizations don't just have one Git repository that you're dealing with either, right? And so that becomes this other issue where you're like, put that in the readme or put that in the, like, but what if it's something that's kind of like documentation kind of that kind of crosses you know, you know, if you're not working just one mono repo or something, or you got multiple repositories, then you're like, where does that then go? And then it becomes this like, well, and then you're trying to find like the right place for it. And then it gets really tricky about where to know where to search for things, where to find things, where to reference things. Like, is this stuff getting, when this, if I put a comment in referencing some other repository, but that it won't make sense until this stuff is committed. And then now you have versioning challenges between repositories. This stuff's hard, even like maintaining things in a wiki is challenging because maybe you're making changes, but we, like the documentation in the wiki can't change until something gets merged, you know, because it's still, it's like a, another level of, of versioning challenges and stuff like that. But it's, I, I think it's, it's interesting to try to think about like the areas around having useful error messages, how we document things in our, our test coverage as a way to help convey the intent and the why or commit messages. Do you, have you seen any success with any other sort of like code editor tools that like add on some extra features that maybe sit on top of that as well? Or you have a little, what's your take on that? That's a good question. I think that some of it can be accomplished with some tooling, which can be helpful. Uh, I'm a big fan of the annotation view in most code editors because I like the fact that I can then see when each line last changed and why. Uh, one of the common counter arguments that I hear for this is like, well, when the line changes again, then the commit message will just change again. And that's true. However, what I have found is that when I am looking at the annotation for an entire file, if it's a longer lasting change that affected a broader amount of code, that message is still in there on some line. And so generally what I find myself doing when I'm trying to figure out why a file is the way it is, is I'll open the annotation view and then I'll sort of read the commit messages in approximate temporal order of commit. And that gives me a good idea of what changed and when and why. And if there's like maybe just one line that changed, then yeah, the original commit message will have been overwritten on that line but the overarching context of the larger architecture of the file remains the same, which I appreciate a lot. In terms of helping me with documentation, I'm a big fan of using sort of open API swagger integrations for external API documentation. I think that that's great. I like that it's living. I like that as the implementation changes, then that changes. And I also like that it's interactive. I like that when someone is visiting a service that has docs like that, then they can try out the requests for themselves. I've seen that work on, I've, I've been developing a fair number of fast API APIs in the past. Fast API is a framework that does this automatically. Flask will also do this. There are a number of different, there's sort of an integration for any given API framework that you can think of that'll do that. And uh, it can be really valuable for that reason. And it prevents some of the most common issues that I see of API documentation getting out of date, such that clients now have to have knowledge that's not in the documentation in order to be able to use the API. So those are the two that come to mind right away. Nice. I'll definitely include links to Swagger 
And I'm not, I'm not familiar with Fast API myself either, so I'm going to do a little bit of research on that. I'm curious about it. You know, one of the things you had mentioned earlier was around maintenance load, and, and I'm going to share links in the uh, the show notes also to a number of articles you wrote about technical debt. Something I was really excited to talk about because that's kind of what we cover a lot on the podcast. And just kind of taking a quick step back, you know, you mentioned maintenance load, and like, how do you go about before we maybe get into how do you quantify that? Like, what what do you mean by that? So. I shy away from the term technical debt in general because I think that we all have programmers tend to have very firm ideas about what that term means to them. And I think that it can be easier to get everybody on the same page by shifting to a term that folks have fewer existing associations with. Uh, and tech debt in particular is one of those with a lot of those associations. I mentioned the false association of tech debt and bad code. There are a number of other f- associations like that with of varying degrees of falseness, but they are certainly different. And so I, f- I like to use the term maintenance load when I am describing the state of a code base. The maintenance load describes the amount of work that has to be done on the code base that is Anything besides adding features or removing features. That's the heuristic that I use for it. And folks can have different opinions about what the semantics are. Does this count as maintenance load? Does that? I find that by using that heuristic, I get like close enough to be able to measure it in a way that is useful for determining the maintainability of our current code base and how we might make it more maintainable. It makes sense. Uh, and, I, and I can appreciate that because one of my favorite questions to ask people on this podcast is like, how do you go about defining technical debt? And do you feel like your own understanding of, or has your opinion, like if, if you would go back five, 10 years ago in your degree, in your career, would you might have described technical debt differently than you would now? And how has that evolved over the years? And because I, 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 I know from my own take, I've definitely described technical debt as code that someone else written wrote that I disagree with. Maybe a better way to phrase it now would be like that I don't understand maybe is another probably more accurate way of probably looking back on that. But, um, but I like, I like this idea of, it was one thing I really enjoyed about your articles there. Uh, I kind of getting, digging into this a little bit more. So how do you go about quantifying that in some meaningful way? Cause it's like, is I, uh, a lot, oftentimes we'll see people talk to teams where they're putting like items in a backlog or they have a laundry list or someone can start rattling off a big list of things that they think are maintenance type tasks that are perceived as being different than, you know, just working on, you know, shipping new features and things like that. So how do you kind of quantify that work? Mm-hmm. I generally quantify that in terms of developer effort. So On a given team, there tends to be some sort of ticket tracking or something like that. And so sometimes it's a bit of a manual process to go back a couple of weeks and determine what the number would be. But what I like to do is try to figure out what percentage of my team's time and effort is going towards things that are not adding features or removing features. And then when I'm talking to product owners or the business about it, I tend to frame that in units of developers. For example, so our team has four people on it, and currently this is a hypothetical team, not my actual current team. This hypothetical team maybe has four developers on it, and maybe three developers' worth of effort is going to adding features 
or rather is going to stuff other than adding features and removing features. And I like that for a couple of reasons. And the first reason is that it tends to be very quick and effective at communicating to the business what their question usually is, which is why is velocity not higher than it is? And by using that metric, I can communicate very quickly to them like, okay, you see this team of four sitting here working, but what you have to imagine really is that it's one person available to work on the things that from your perspective, you'd like our team to be working on. And the reasons for that is that our system has accrued an amount of maintenance load such that to keep the existing system running such that the fourth developer has a working system to put features on, these three have to be employed in this other task, which helps to communicate why the other three can't just drop what they're doing right now. Another uh, reason that I like that framing of things, it offers an opportunity to talk with the team about how we would go about freeing up more of that capacity to work on adding and removing features. And there's a specific reason why I include removing features in not maintenance load that I imagine we'll get to, so I'll leave it for now. But the conversation from there, instead of being like, why is the team so slow, can be, where can we invest developer effort such that our return on investment is so such that we get a return on that investment of opportunities for developers to work on adding and removing features like we would like in the future. So I find that that tends to take the conversation in a very productive direction from the business standpoint. Finally, it's also really nice from the technical standpoint because when we talk about technical debt and folks are like, we need to pay down technical debt, what I have seen happen more often than not is that some technical director or some team lead spends a bunch of social capital and buys themselves three weeks. And then they turn around and they're like, all right, you have three weeks, clean up tech debt. And then here's what happens when you tell the team to do that is inevitably, you know, I like the definition that you shared of technical debt earlier that that maybe you wouldn't use now because I think it's illustrative of what happens in this circumstance is that inevitably some portion of the team thinks of technical debt as code somebody else wrote that they don't agree with. So then they're given free reign for three weeks to go clean up technical debt. And what that looks like to them is go find code that annoys them personally and rewrite that code such that it does all the same things, but now is no longer an eyesore to them personally, which does not necessarily reduce the maintenance load, particularly if it's like a piece of the code base that the team understood well, but just didn't like. Now they like it better, but there hasn't actually been any material change in the amount of time that they're going to have to spend in it. And so when we're talking about investments in a lower maintenance load for the future, we can talk about which of those investments are actually going to be the most effective at reducing the maintenance load. And frequently, it's not going to be those kinds of code renovations that developers might jump to if they're given free reign to reduce technical debt for three weeks. And that's the reason that I exclude removing features from maintenance load, is that we have this theoretical framework now that that we're imagining around maintenance load and why and how it gets higher as a code base gets developed and we can maybe decrease how fast it grows by having the appropriate code stewardship practices, the appropriate documentation practices. So that's the theoretical framework. In practice, 
if we are trying to reduce maintenance load, the highest return on investment that I have seen in practice is removing features that are no longer pulling their weight from a product value perspective. And that is why I removed feature removal from the maintenance load cost is that that activity is so valuable an investment that it deserved recharacterization to properly align developers' incentives with removing all of those at every opportunity. How do you go about helping convey that to like a product owner, product team where they're maybe that like some features got added five years ago? Maybe they're being used, maybe not. Nobody remembers why. Maybe maybe most of the team isn't even wasn't around then. Maybe necessarily and like I don't know. There's these things that we're having to take care of, or I don't. We never deal with that. It doesn't seem to be broken, but it does add a lot more complexity to the system. How do you, how do how do how have you seen developers help make sense of that so they can kind of quantify that in some way that be like whether it's going to be it's just going to make our lives easier. Maybe it seems like a nice. Because you mentioned like the the phrase pulling its weight, how do you help assess that, or if it's even being used? It's a good question, and it's a tough one because from the perspective of product people, generally what they are imagining is an additive model for the product. What else can we add? What can we change? What can we make better? What do we want people to be able to do that they can't do right now with the thing that we're building? And there isn't necessarily a dedicated piece of the product process around which of these things can we remove. And that's not necessarily because they don't agree with removing features. It's just that's not a dedicated part of the process. In my experience, it's not a thing that the product team has thought about when I bring it up to them. But I have not encountered as much resistance as I thought I would when I first started bringing this to product teams. When I say, you know, well, currently the team is spending a whole bunch of its effort on maintaining the following features. If we were maintaining fewer of those, then we would potentially be able to work on other stuff where I found it helpful to use two different metaphors to describe this. The first is a rent metaphor that effectively we pay rent on all of these features. And this is the amount of rent that we paid on each of these features in the past month and the past two months. Are there any of these features that you would like us to remove and stop paying rent on? Then what we need to do is dedicate somebody for some amount of time to getting rid of that feature. And then we no longer have to pay rent on that feature anymore. And that can be really nice. And that is sometimes a new-ish concept for, for product teams, but more often than not, when we give them that list of features, there'll be people on the product team who are like, I didn't even know our product did that, and I definitely don't think it needs to. And it turns out that very much like developers, product people will also, once they once they stumble upon this new breadth of the system, will find that former product people on the team made decisions that they don't agree with. And some of those decisions are, we have these features in the application that new product folks are like, yeah, I don't really know why we do that. Maybe we we just get rid of that. I didn't even know it did that. Uh, so that is one model that I find helpful. The other model that I find helpful for, the other metaphor rather, that I find helpful for talking about this is the resume metaphor. Now, everybody listening to this podcast Uh, who works for the government, just like turn your ears off for a second because I understand that the U.S. government requires this like very long resume process. But for 
tech industry, like private company type of things, when I'm applying to a company, I tend to keep my resume under a page. And that's like maybe storied career advice because theoretically the recruiter only spends 15 seconds, yada, yada, yada. I don't care. I don't think the recruiters actually read literally anything. I think they read the line under my name on LinkedIn. That's literally all they know. So I don't think they even read the resume. That's not why I keep it short. The reason I keep the resume short is that if I put literally everything I've ever done on my resume, that gives the interviewer opportunities to talk about a whole bunch of things I don't particularly care to talk about. So I want to limit the number of things that I'm going to get asked about to the things that I am excited to talk to an interviewer about. And for the same reason, it can be helpful to keep the product's feature suite to the things that we want folks doing with our application. I do not want to talk to an interviewer about the very first Rails app that I ever wrote as a junior programmer because now all of the technical choices that I made in that app embarrass me. Like, am I proud of the fact that I did it? Yes, but only because me doing that in the past was a stepping stone to me becoming the developer that I am now. But I don't want to talk about it from a technical perspective with people. And by the same token, we don't want folks who are paying us to use our product getting distracted from the features we're proud of because they're messing with a feature that half the product team didn't even realize was in there. And we're not really trying to leverage anymore for delivering value to people. And so I find that that distraction model can also be really helpful is like, listen, adding feature after feature after feature doesn't necessarily add the value that we want all the time unless we also remove these other features because people who are joining our product will get distracted by these features that we don't value. And they don't necessarily know what we value, but the way we can communicate what we value is limit our effort to maintaining those features that we want folks using and remove the option to get distracted by this other stuff that isn't what we want folks doing with our stuff. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. So let's try to imagine that some of the listeners are maybe a step or two removed from having like a lot of connection with the product team. Maybe they're part of a development team and it's like a little bit removed from being able to feel like they can have a lot of influence, but they might have some suspicion that there's areas of the code or areas of the application that are maybe rarely used or forgotten about. What sort of advice could you offer them on how to raise that if they don't necessarily feel like they are the ones to be the vocal advocate for removing something. They're new to the job and still trying to figure themselves figure themselves out in the that political landscape that they they find themselves into. I see. That's a good question. If they're new to the job, I definitely would not recommend yanking out features. My perspective on joining a job is honestly to take some time to learn why the system is the way it is, and I prescribe that for two reasons. The first is 
as I mentioned before, I think that sometimes when developers disagree with the decisions of former developers, it's very easy to, I didn't put it exactly in these terms, but it's very easy to misattribute that to the the previous developers not knowing what they were doing, when in fact what it often is, is capable developers who are under constraints that the new developers don't necessarily understand. Revisiting those decisions can often result in reinventing the wheel because it, the constraints rear their heads, and then it turns out there was a reason that it was the way that it was in the first place. And I think... Developers f- spend a fair amount of their time doing this, as a matter of fact. I think there's a fair amount of hubris in the tech community. I think developers are encouraged by the tech industry to believe that they are smart and they know more about things than people who've spent significantly more time on those things because they have a suspicion about it. To step off that soapbox for a moment, I think that when I join a team, I want to spend time making sure that I understand those constraints rather than going in and trying to change those things. Because more often than not, it turns out there were reasons that I didn't understand initially why the thing is the way it is. And uh, now I have avoided wasting time on that. The second thing about it is that once I have taken that time to understand the system, I'm going to be much better at prescribing solutions that actually work for the team. So I'm spending my first few months building my social capital, understanding the system that I'm in, and then after that, I'm able to spend time effectively surgically fixing the things that can be fixed while addressing many of the objections to fixing them that I might not have understood when I originally joined the team. That's an approach that I have found to be not only more effective from a social capital perspective than joining a team and uh, immediately declaring myself capable of fixing all these things the existing team hasn't fixed, but also more technically viable. And the solutions that I end up proposing end up staying in the code base for longer because they were more sensitive to the competing interests and, like you mentioned, the political landscape and sometimes also the technical constraints that we're working with. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, thanks for digging into that. I appreciate that. And so earlier, you know, we were talking about maintenance load, and there's this like uh, idea that you know, as you're building new things and adding new features, you're increasing, or there's still some output of that is going to always require some additional maintenance work, right? And so, where's that balance between like you know, leadership or whoever's like looking at this problem thing? Like, well, should we just add more people to the situation? We'll just bring some more developers in and then we can have certain developers focused on maintenance stuff while we have the other people focused on people working on new features and other people focused just on maintenance type tasks. And I, I bring that up because sometimes my company gets called a lot to come in and help companies that are, okay, we need to keep our, like this is literally a conversation I have like every two weeks with some other company and they're like, we need our team focused on shipping new stuff. We don't take time to take care of this like technical debt, the stuff that's been in the backlog. So we, we don't want to slow down, but we need to do this in parallel. And then there's always this like awkward conversation of like, well, sounds great, but we don't have a lot of context for why things is the way it is. You know, you're speaking, building up that, you know, understanding like their technical constraints and everything else there. It's not just like a cool, just hire someone and put them on that. Like, why don't you just go hire someone to do that? Because it's like, I don't think it's that easy, right? And so what's been your experience in that sort of capacity? Have you found a good balance? Do you feel like, having people specifically have either a percentage of their team working on that or or every developer being responsible for some percentage of their time doing working on maintenance work versus pushing the product, I'm air quoting, forward? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. I think that there is a risk associated with it, which is that one of the primary drivers of maintenance load is context loss, the absence of context. Like you mentioned, uh, it might not be that all of the team has the necessary context to be able to make the changes that need to be made, and that's part of the reason that I advocate for folks uh, not really trying to do that until they've been on a job a while is because they need to gather that context, right? So once we split off some portion of the team specifically to deal with that, they are now building their own context independent of the team that is theoretically shipping features who are themselves building context that the maintenance side doesn't necessarily have. And it's not necessarily that I think it's a bad idea in all cases. I think that there are places where it might be the appropriate fit, probably places where it's not the appropriate fit. And an important risk for the team to be aware of and potentially take steps to mitigate is that when the team is split like that, there's going to be context that is not shared anymore. Then if, say one portion of that team in the extreme case were to leave, then that context is effectively lost. But even if just part of that team leaves or those teams continue working in isolation such that they, maybe the maintenance team no longer has context on the new stuff that the feature team has built since the team split up, uh, that team will become less effective at being able to take things off of the feature team's plate. And so that risk might need to be mitigated. And there might be different ways to mitigate that. Maybe it's cross-pairing occasionally, which I've seen work in certain circumstances. Maybe it's the team switching. Maybe it's regular rotation. Maybe it's good code stewardship practices around documentation. So that's one risk that I see with it. The other risk that I see with it is that it it removes the incentive for the feature development team to develop the kind of code stewardship practices that would decrease the speed at which maintenance load is accruing. I think that maintenance load always accrues. Like the longer the code, when I ask, when I ask audiences about the highest maintenance load they've seen, there's a correlation between the age of the code base and the amount of maintenance load that's required. Part of the reason for that is that tools and techniques change. And when the existing system is, was written in, for example, in 2012, best practices in 2012 were very different than they are in 2022. TDD, like, wasn't a thing then at the time that it is now. PHP was the backbone of services then in a way that, like, people like to lampoon it now. I got a lot of respect for PHP. It powers, like, 39% of the internet. But, however, there are sort of practices that were part and parcel with programming 10 years ago that just aren't now. And you have to understand what the programming landscape was like 10 years ago to be able to understand why code like that is the way it is. And so that's part of it. And another part of it is that code stewardship impacts how fast that maintenance load accrues. So there's this one part, which is some of the code is old. Okay, some of the code is old. That's not the code's fault. That's maybe that's maybe the maintenance load accrual that I would say we uh, can't change as easily. I mean, sure, we could change it by going in and, and updating all of our code annually, but realistically, people aren't going to do that. So let's say that's that's the inherent maintenance load accrual rate. And then on top of that, there's also this, this uh, variable maintenance load accrual rate that we can impact by having better or worse code stewardship practices. And if the way that the company is dealing with maintenance load accrual is by just hiring more other developers to take care of that portion of the work, then the team that's doing the feature building 
won't necessarily adopt code stewardship practices that decrease the rate at which that maintenance load is accruing. So that on top of maybe the failures to transfer context between the two teams might end up meaning that this maintenance team has to hire at a faster and faster rate in order to keep up with what's happening on the system as a whole, which ends up, I think, being... uh, the rate at which they would need to hire ends up outstripping the speed at which you sort of can hire in tech right now. And so then the maintenance load starts to get ahead of the team. You know, do you think that there's a, a, a pattern there that teams could, if like when they, I've seen, talked to some people that talk about rotation schedules to some degree. So people get to deal with some of the past things that they've dealt, you know, they might've implemented or they're, you know, their team had been part of implementing and like, okay, now that it's been in production for three or six months, we need to make some refinements and, you know, improve the quality of the code base or make it easier for other people to understand what's going on and improve that, you know, we're talking about context, you know, documentation and testing, or do you, do you find that's a helpful pattern if they can't necessarily just be divvying up like percentage of their time, each sprint or whatever, however their team's working? That's a good question. And I think it's one of those things where, Maybe the we have to use a model that is wrong but useful. We just have to apply a model that's like, okay, this is going to be inaccurate in like seven in let's say twenty five percent of cases, but the other seventy five percent of the time it's going to help us somewhat. And so one of the models that I really like for that is something that I've been trying on a team that I worked with for the past fourteen months, which is effectively evaluating a code base at each year after it has been developed and at each major context loss event. So we developed this app. It was in Python, which is neither here nor there. But as we were developing it the first time, we had a limited understanding of the use cases that we were going to use this application for. And about a year after its development, there were already things that were frustrating folks about how to use it, how to maintain it, how to make changes to it. And I was able to do this continuously throughout the year because I was on the team continuously throughout the year. But I think another solution that would make sense is at each application's anniversary, bring the team together, take a look at the tickets that we've worked on on that app, and ask the team what parts of maintaining this app are frustrating or take additional time or maybe could work more smoothly. And then take stock of what all of those are. And inevitably, some developer is going to inject like, well, this is a static method. I don't like it when we use static methods. And so then the next step, I think, is to take that list and ask like, how is this frustrating thing increasing our maintenance load? And that tends to knock out, not all, because somebody will make a convincing case for their thing. But I would say that it will knock out two-thirds of like things that I would characterize as gratuitous sort of code renovations that aren't necessarily going to improve maintenance load. And then take that list and holistically consider what changes can we make to this application uh, with the minimum investment from the team that will address these issues. So... In the example that I'm talking about, what I did was I took a list of those issues and I ended up building, it was an API app, building a parallel path through the API app 
that addressed a lot of those issues with a request that some new clients were going to be using and made it deliberately easy for us to incrementally move from the old path towards the new path without breaking the old path. But the new path demonstrated a lot of the transformations that would end up decreasing the maintenance load from the old path to the new path. And what that did was it eliminated a lot of risks that I think, or rather I would say significantly mitigated a lot of risks that you run into when you do something like that. So the first thing is when you do a big refactor, that is itself a major context loss event. Like similar to the way that uh, this is the example on my mind right now because my mom's going through cancer treatment right now. So she has to uh, include it in that as radiation treatment. Radiation treatment addresses the existing tumor. It also increases the likelihood of future, it increases your risk in the future of tumors. And that is how a major refactor works as well. It can be extremely effective at addressing existing issues. It also wipes a whole bunch of context that the team has about the way that the system currently works which increases the risk that in the future they're not going to understand what's going on and they're going to bolt on more kludges because they're in a hurry and they have to get the thing out by the deadline. And so doing a major refactor has risks that I think we don't necessarily think about. And the way that I approached this one was that I built this parallel path, which allowed folks to experiment for themselves with the difference between the old workflow and the new workflow and allows us to move over from the old workflow to the new workflow incrementally, which gives folks the opportunity to gradually update their context to the new flow and then over time remove the old flow. Now, what does this introduce the risk of? It introduces the risk that the old flow just like stays indefinitely because there's nothing, there's no forcing function there. So what that means is that my new flow needs to decrease maintenance load by so much that the team is motivated to write things in the new flow rather than the old flow and to move things from the old flow to the new flow. And I find that that pressure on me ends up in me, or in this case, that pressure on me resulted in me making conscious choices about how, uh, about weighing the context loss I was going to generate with a change over the reduction in maintenance load that making that change would buy me. And I think that having the incentive structure set up like that helped me make choices with the rest of my team in mind in a way that we don't always do when we get three weeks to Bula Rasa to quote-unquote address tech debt. So that was one thing that I I appreciated about the way that that approach changed my thought process in making these changes. We'll be back with our interview with Chelsea in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're listening to these episodes, are you even listening right now? Maybe you're out running, jogging. Actually, I did this about a couple months ago, and a few of you reached out to me and sent me some nice emails and DM'd me on Twitter, and I really appreciated that. So feel free to do that or write a review on Apple Podcasts or... Um, I think you can do that now also on, on Audible um, and other places like that online. So help spread the word. I really appreciate that. 
Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be having on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Chelsea Troy. So I wanted to also take a quick step back and get to know a little bit more about you. And I know that you are working on a number of self-paced workshops because you taught a lot of, and do a lot of workshops over the years. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, uh, share with our listeners a little bit about what topics you're covering in your workshops and where people can learn more about that. So I give a couple of workshops right now. One of them is about analyzing risk in a software system. And so what it does is it provides a framework for determining what could go wrong in an application and how bad it would be if it goes wrong. We've got other frameworks for this. We've got Six Sigma and stuff like that that are very complicated. You could read 500-page books on them. But in my experience, because they are so complicated, developers don't end up using them. And so instead, what developers end up using is their gut to figure out what's most likely to happen. What's wrong with that? Surprise, surprise, a whole bunch of cognitive biases. <laughs> so um, I'm, I've tried to develop a framework that's accurate enough to be useful, but simple enough to be used. I think that if I am to have a lasting impact on the software engineering community, I am hoping it will be some advancement in the area of striking the appropriate balance between accuracy and simplicity in developing frameworks for how to build and maintain software. Because what happens if it's too complicated is that folks make something up that ends up not being accurate. And so I want to build frameworks that are simple to use, but like at least 75% accurate <laughs> uh, to the degree that I can. And this analyzing risk workshop is is one of those. I go through a procedure for figuring out what could go wrong in the application and then figuring out how quote unquote bad all of those risks are. And we talk about how to put more precision on bad in the workshop and then look for clues as to how to mitigate each of those risks. So that's that workshop. It's a lot of fun. And I do a a super speedy one hour version. I got a two hour version. I got a three hour version of that workshop. The other one that I give I have a couple of different variations on this, but they're all about addressing technical debt. That's the term that I label the workshop with because that's what people are kind of looking for. Very quickly in that workshop, we then switch over to the idea of maintenance load, and we talk about evaluating tickets in terms of what their impact in the short term and long term on maintenance load is going to be, and then how do we think about reducing maintenance load on our existing app? How do we think about slowing the increase of maintenance load on our existing app? That one's a lot of fun. I do a two-hour version of that. I do a three-hour version of that. I do a, I do a specific three-hour version of that for O'Reilly about technical debt first steps. And then the other one is a more generalized sort of like analytical approach to addressing technical debt that I hope similarly accomplishes the function of providing a simple 70-something percent accurate model for addressing some of these some of these tech debt issues. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to have to check those out myself, um, see if that's something for my team and myself, especially when you're like, always hearing different people's perspective on how you're just like, let's, like you mentioned, like looking at tickets and things like that, just like, do you use some specific examples of like, here's a ticket where there's some known issues and here's how we can start kind of navigating, breaking this down a little bit to make more sounds and to also help 
get that prioritized and the thumbs up from those who decide what shows up in the next sprint or not? Yeah, we do. As a matter of fact, uh, both of the versions of the tech debt workshop include a simulation exercise where I have written out six tickets and then the group collectively decides how they would prioritize those tickets. And then we go through in the workshop, the tickets in order of priority, and we discuss how we would address those tickets. And I don't think this is, I don't think this is giving too much away. Surprise, surprise. There are different ways that you could address each of those tickets and reasonable people would differ on how you might address them. And so we talk about uh, what I like to get to in the workshop, if I can, is what variables for your team should you be evaluating to decide which of these different approaches would be appropriate? I like that. That's, a, that's great. So a couple of quick last questions for you as we wrap up. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a somewhat regular basis? That's a good question. Non-software, non-technical book that I find myself recommending to folks. Well, I can share a couple with you, I think. I'm a big fan of this book called Cork Dork. And I'm going to forget the name of the author right now, but she's, uh, I believe, an investigative reporter by trade. But she spent a year trying to become a sommelier, and I think actually succeeding at passing her sommelier exam. And it's uh, it's just interesting. It's fun. I think it's kind of cool. I myself decided not to become one of these people who's too knowledgeable about wine because I think being knowledgeable about wine is expensive. Yes. And uh, I wasn't I, I wasn't trying to have that. I wanted to still be able to appreciate my two buck chuck or whatever from Trader Joe's. But it's a very good book, and I appreciate it a lot. Another book that I find myself recommending. This is going to sound terrible. But earlier in life, I had this period where I was quite depressed and I was living in New York and I was in a laundromat one time and they had this take one, leave one bookshelf. And I found this book on there called Death from the Skies. It's by an astronomer named Phil Platt. And it turns out that that copy that I found was signed, which is just a fun anecdote. But I read the book and it talks about all of the ways that space could kill us 10 minutes from now. But it does it, it's, it's hard to explain, but it does it in like a humorous way that I found oddly comforting at that very fatalistic period in my life. And so I recommend it to folks who are similarly going through their phase of like, oh, what does it all mean? What am I even doing here? I just think that it's a fun, funny look at that. Great. I'll definitely include links to both of those in the show notes for, for, for our listeners. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software engineering and development online? Oh, gosh. So I have a blog. It is surprisingly named ChelseaTroy.com. That's Chelsea, like the neighborhood in New York. Troy, like Helen of Troy.com. And I have on there my sort of about me section and all of my, I write there pretty regularly. I've been writing a lot about compilers on there lately, but there's a series on there about some of these concepts of maintenance load and stuff and complete with illustrations and that kind of stuff. And so that's one place. I also, uh, I also belong to the great online cafeteria that is Twitter, and you'll frequently find me flinging corn and starting food fights over there at uh, Hey Chelsea Troy. That's my handle. Well, excellent. It's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Chelsea. Thank you so much for stopping by to, to talk shop with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd come again anytime. time.